of Atlantis. Your foul species is hereby banned from the seas and oceans of the world. Any who enter the waters will face my wrath. Imperious Rex! Hello and welcome to a new episode of Third Degree Burn. I am back with uh, my co-conspirator, Kirk Greenfield, and we are continuing our coverage of Namor the Submariner. Uh, this issue, or this show, we will be covering issues 15 and 16, uh, and Kirk has the first issue. Uh, Kirk, before we get going, do you want to, uh, we have a little bit of a tie-in with Back to the Bins. Do you want to kind of, you can kind of give them a shout out, and it's your, kind of your, at your uh, suggestion, so if you want to kind of give the listeners a little background on that. Sure. Good morning. Um as it turns out, I was doing a little bit of research on the Griffin, and somebody had suggested that he had appeared in Amazing Adventures and the Beast uh, short-lived solo story, or strip, whatever you want to call that, about six issues uh, back in the early 70s before going over to uh, Marvel Team-Up and also into the Champions. Anyway, I was uh, interested to hear Paul... Spataro mentioned on Back to the Bins that he had a great affinity for that time period. So I shot him a message and asked him if he had a copy of the issue where the Griffin appeared. And he said, I did. He, he, he did have it. So I asked if by any chance he would consider uh, reviewing it or, or uh, using it on his show, Back to the Bins. And to my great pleasure, it appeared this week. Uh, it showed up just before Halloween, which is appropriate, I guess since the character looks like a Halloween costume. Mm -hmm. And uh, he covered it on his episode, so I greatly appreciate that. And uh, he has great, great, uh, what's the word that I want, affinity for it? Great uh, nostalgia, that's the word. Nostalgia, yeah. And uh, the other people that were on board couldn't stand the art, which I can understand. Uh, it's not a terrific art, but it's an interesting start for the character. And that's what I really wanted. So thank you very much, Paul. I appreciate that. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add that uh, Scott Gardner was critical of the artwork, but he did like the character of the Griffin. So that's uh, if you're anybody's interested, that is Back to the Bends number uh, show five eighty nine, and it's Amazing Amazing Adventures number fifteen. Well, I was unfamiliar with the character until it showed up in, in Namor. Same and way. I really enjoy how uh, Byrne is using him. And, and I was curious to know if by any chance, uh, when the character appears in the Champions, if it, the, those issues were drawn or co-plotted or they had anything to do with Byrne. And at this point, I think the answer is no from my research. I think he joins one or two issues after uh, that arc is finished, so yeah. I don't know a great deal about the champions except for uh, Burn coming in late in the in the act. Of, well, we've we've covered those issues in our own show. So, are we interested in starting with Namor fifteen? I did a little synopsis here for you. Yeah, Jim, let's just get into this. All right. Well, <clears throat> at this point. We've completed one year of the book, and we're now into the second year, and the plots and subplots are going to interweave and become much more complex instead of uh, just simple uh, done-in-one or two-issue dyads. Uh, 
the, the storylines are much more involved. And as they overlap, there are some flashbacks, and you can tell that uh, there are, there's just a whole host of characters, supporting characters, uh, and uh, other guest stars that are, are starting to show up here. So this is Namor 15, story and art by John Byrne, coloring by Glynis Oliver, editor Terry Cavanaugh, Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief. The $1 cover shows Namor in his business suit in the corner box, but the cover shows him riding the back of the Griffin toward the viewer as two pterodactyls are fleeing from him. There's a lot of uh, shading or duotone on this cover as well. The splash page is a shaded image of Namor riding the Griffin as they descend through apparent white clouds. It's an opportunity to do flashbacks. It's a setup of Namor's descent into the Savage Land. Namor and the Griffin are rendered in duo shade, which runs throughout this book. While Namor is being chided by Nina in the first flashback, who is covering in thin air above his desk. Her disapproval of Namor getting involved in Phoebe Mars is echoed by Lady Jacqueline Fallsworth, recently rejuvenated by a blood transfusion by the original Dean Torch, as I recall. An Atlantean warrior or scientist bursts into the room to tell Namor the news that his dead wife, Lady Dorma, is very much alive and well in Atlantis. Namor reflects back to the shock twist when he and Dorma were wed back in Submariner number 35, and as he kissed her, he realized it wasn't Dorma, but Lyra, the shapeshifter in disguise. She cackled that she was that she was wed to him and was now queen of Atlantis. Namor also relives when Lyra shattered the water tube that Dorma was held captive in, leaving her to gasp for breath as she died in Submariner 36. Namor still grieves for her, although he has had other assignations with other women since. Namor visits Captain America in flashback, who was working out in gymnastics in Avengers Mansion. He doesn't ask permission to return to Atlantis, but informs Steve that he is going. Cap says he'd stop Namor if he had to, but he accepts that this is very, very important to Namor. He makes one request, that Namor take the griffin with him, since they can't seem to keep him caged for long. Well, Namor also visits the Mars twins and asks Desmond to keep an eye on Oracle for him during his absence in Atlantis. Desmond is delighted at the play as Namor has placed the company he wants to destroy directly into his hands. After Namor departs, he compliments Phoebe for playing the lovesick puppy, but she privately tells Desmond that she wasn't acting when she pleaded to go with Namor. Desmond backhands Phoebe once more, calling her a witch and saying he knew all about their relationship and the recent trip to Connecticut. Although he doesn't mention her child, nor the reason for the trip, as he lords over her fallen body. Namor flies back on the Atlantean scout ship, back to Antarctica, his birthplace, where his people have migrated to. He temporarily leaves Carrie behind in the ship, as he and Nina swim down to Atlantis. He notes the waters are feeling far too warm. He arrives at the palace tower, greeted by, greeted by Lord Vashti, and meets the woman claimed to be Dorma. Much later, Nina asks him how it went, and he admits, though it looks like Dorma, the woman has the mind of a child. He says they must seek out Dorma's grave and check on it. 
Nina hesitates to tell him that Atlantis, in fact, is sick, that people are dying from the overly warm waters that have been traced back to the land of mists, their term for the savage land. He says his duty is clear. He must solve the mystery in Atlantis before dealing with Dorma. And so we return to the present as he rides the Griffin down through the clouds and mists into the savage land. All is as he expects to find, except for a large complex that resembles an aerodome. He lands and instructs the Griffin to stay, thinking that he will comprehend and follow Namor's commands. Namor infiltrates the complex, even as he is being observed and stalked by a figure in shadow who dons a mask with long ribbons. And we'll come back to this, put a pin on that. As Namor moves closer, Overhearing workers talking about moving dirt and sifting it with laser shovels, he is convinced that this is an evil operation. Suddenly, he's blindsided, struck by a flaming fist, which KOs him. The figure stands above him and gloats that the hour of his redemption is close, and this will be Namor's death day. It appears to be Iron Man in the flesh. Next issue, the mystery draws closer to its solution as an additional question of or rather, questions by the dozen are added. Be here next issue, faithful ones, for the tale that is titled Fist of Iron. And that's my summary. Nicely done. Uh, I will say you said Iron Man. It's Iron Fist. Oh, did I? It's Sorry. His. It's all right. <laughs> no worries. I think Thanks. That, wait, that's wait. important. It should be Iron Fist. <laughs> exactly. That is two different characters. But uh, Sorry. Uh, very dramatic ending to this. Uh, I like this episode or this issue a lot. It was um, the duo shade is really gorgeous throughout this whole book um, that he's been using off and on in some of these issues, especially when he is he has he picks a Namor in the clouds because <clears throat> that's all duo shade. So it, you can tell he's in a he's in the clouds or he's like in a fog or something. So it's just a gray kind of dotted pattern of the Griffin and Namor. Um, and then when he comes out of it, he does a little nice little transition where you see the, the Griffin's legs just coming out. So those are in color. The rest is still shaded. And then all the underwater stuff is is really gorgeous. The way he's been doing the, the reflection of the light uh, across their faces while they're in Atlantis. Or I guess this is not Atlantis. It's, um, well, I guess maybe it is Atlantis. Um, but that really plays up the strengths of the duo shade that... Um, Shows that they're underwater, so I, that was brilliantly done. When it's used properly, it's very effective. But if very, that yes. effect, I become a bit tired of it in the Atlantis underwater scenes. It seems overly—I don't know if the words contrived, but it, it, it becomes tiresome for me. It's not bad. I like the issue. I like how he uses it. But I think a little goes a long way. And I'm very glad to see in some sequences when they're on the surface world or visiting Avengers Mansion or elsewhere, it's almost a relief for me that it's like, ah, we've gotten away yeah. from that Ripley effect, finally. Uh, but although there's duo shade in virtually every page, every panel in this book. Well, to your point, when it's used sparingly just to force soft shading in the character's look, it's very effective, but yeah, I, I, a whole issue of this kind of reflective wavy look that's on their faces 
uh, it can get a little, I could see it could get a little um, tiresome because it almost obstructs Burns' artwork because you're so distracted by this. You know, it, it it's more of a, it feels a little indulgent on him maybe that, look, this is a cool thing I can do. And this is not something that uh, you can normally do in a comic. So I'm going to do it. Um, I've it's got some reminder that they're underwater. True. Um, right. There have been other artists like Gene Cullen who have drawn underwater scenes that look completely like they're on, you know, on the surface or above the water line. And there's no clue that they're underwater except for an occasional fish that seems to be floating in the background or right. maybe an air bubble. But, uh, and, and I enjoy those issues. It doesn't bother me, except that in Gene Cohen's case, Atlantis is drawn as if it has its uh, bedrock from the Flintstones. Um, that was just, I hadn't caught that, but my daughter, when we were reviewing those issues, pointed that out. Boy, she's right. By comparison, Atlantis, or the rebuilt Atlantis that he visits here, is very, very modern, very stylized. Trying to think how to describe it. It reminds me of what Byrne will use as he draws Krypton. Krypton. Yeah. He gets to Superman. And, you know, that's not unusual to see an artist reuse uh, concepts or, or images again and again. Uh, we saw Asgard being drawn by Jack Kirby, and he, you know, he borrowed teapots and steamers and vacuum cleaners and, uh, you know, used them as inspiration for the bizarre shape of the buildings, uh, and then repeated that sort of same architecture when he established the hidden land uh, for the Inhumans in the Himalayas. Yeah. But uh, I'm off this, on a tangent here. No, this, I have my notes. This looks very Asgardian with all the yeah. spires and the colors. Uh, lots of towers. Lots of towers. It is a little more organic than in his shapes than he would do when he went to Krypton. Uh, that was much more of a cold, and I think that was on purpose. It was much more of a colder, hard oh, angles yeah. uh, type of building, and I think that was represent the way he, despite he uh, portrayed Krypton. So, um, something else that is interesting, and I don't, I've never read the, uh, the 70s uh, Mariner, Submariner run. Yes. In all of this, whenever they're underground, underwater, they're portrayed as they don't walk. They're all floating. They don't touch the uh, floor. They're all floating, kind of negatively buoyant. So their feet are never touching the the floors of Atlantis. Was it done that way when uh, in his earlier books, or was it they just did they just walk around like as if they were on a uh, standard uh, floor? Walked around as if they were on the surface. Okay. Uh, that... there, there were occasional pictures or fights where Namor was obviously swimming in water or swirling or yeah. soaring or something like that. But for the most part, whenever there was a scene in the palace or, you know, they were grounded. They were on, right. on the bottom, so to speak, on the floor. Uh, I don't recall anyone floating. But again... Well, we're we're talking more than thirty years ago right. when I was those. Right. Those. Well, I, and I just see that as this end 
when he married Dorma finally. She was introduced in Fantastic Four 33 as a uh, plot device to, to get the plot rolling and then was present in his supporting cast for virtually all of the Tales of Tales to Astonish run and into his solo book. And his solo book was like three years running by the time they got to the point where uh, they decided to have them marry, which rather caught me off guard. I was a bit surprised that they were doing that, except I figured, oh, they're trying to shake up the book. What yeah. I hadn't realized was that they were marrying them off specifically to reverse it and reveal that it's not Dorma, but that it was Lyra. That's not a revision. That is how it went down. And that the intent was to kill her and to separate Namor from Atlantis in issue, I think it's 30, 39, but they shift artists, they change directions, and he has a self-imposed exile where he leaves Atlantis and, and begins to wander the earth. It's a real shift in tone that I mm. might was badly needed because the book had gotten stale, uh, but it became tiresome after a short term because he was such a tragic figure and he was always bemoaning he lost his wife, he lost his kingdom, he lost his people. He loses his father, who they reintroduce. Uh, very yeah, I, I said that. I, I read up on this, uh, Lyra, Lyra, this, yeah. uh, whatever her name is, because uh, I, I don't think I knew anything about her, so I just did a, a quick little Google search on her, and I didn't realize she was a, she's a hybrid like him. Her mother was human, and her father was a merman. They're from a, a, I guess a, are they like a cousin race to the Lemurians? Eating uh, undersea kingdom. She's shaded green. I forgot to mention that. You can always tell that it's her because she she sort of looks like pointed ears and arched eyebrows, mm -hmm. and very definitely more green, not the Atlantean blue. So you can tell she's part of. But a she can she can like shape shift or change her. Yes. Her color of her skin so she can uh and I guess she can in the the picture I saw they portrayed her as having a mermaid's tail. But either well, not that I it was retcon. That was must have been retcon. She comes back periodically when they need to shake things up in that series. Um a major villainess who we'd never seen before, but she's always scheming, plotting to take the kingdom or take the power away from Namor, and in her final appearance that I recall, I'm trying to think if it was in the Fantastic Four. I just don't recall. Oh, no, no, it's it's late in this book. It's late in Namor. Uh, as it comes to the end, she makes a, well, spoilers, she makes a big power play and introduces a new character, but uh, we won't we won't spoil that now. We're, we're focusing on the first, yeah. first two years under uh, Byrne. But it's nice kind of for him to revisit uh, Atlantis and kind of bring back, because I always thought his main uh, antagonist, at least in Atlanta, was uh, the Kang. No, cannot Kang. Who's the uh, Warlord? The is it Warlord? Kang? Kang, Atuma. Atuma. Atuma uh, is who I'm thinking about. Others over the years. Yeah. Rah. Atuma. Prince Brar, I can't think of that the correct pronunciation for that. Um, but yeah, I thought this was an interesting. It make, makes me want to go back and read those issues. Uh, 
I need to see if I can dig him up. Uh, but so a lot of a lot of this issue is flashback, um, and it's again playing with time the way Byrne likes to, where it's your your present story is interrupted by little flashbacks leading up to how he got to where he is. Uh, I do like the inter- exchange with him and uh, Cap. I thought was nice. I really like it. That shows that they're you know they do have a deep friendship, and Cap, you know. States that, you know, I, I will do what I need to do, but I understand that I believe in that where you're, you think you have to go is important. And I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to stop you, you know. And then he just tells him to take the, um, which I thought was funny. He's like, take your pet with you. And we see the Griffin, I guess, looks like he's just walking the halls of Avengers compound, uh, which ties in because Namor can't fly anymore because, you know, he's, he's dead. He's lost his wings. So that's his his mode of transportation. I thought that was brilliant. I think Byrne had that plotted right from the beginning uh, when he introduced the Griffin. The Griffin, yep. Uh, I I just thought that was the cat's meow, if you'll forgive the expression. Well, I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if which came first. I wonder if he introduced a Griffin and thought, "Ooh, let I will have Namor lose his wings, and that way he's rely he has to rely on." Uh, this Griffin to get around and it brings the Griffin back in, uh, who is, you know, a a sea level character at best. Um, what do you think of Namor's handing over his company or temporarily to, uh, Desmond Mars? Well, I guess it makes sense that he would ask somebody to shepherd or keep an eye on things, watch the, mind the store while he's gone. Uh, it's, Clearly, part of the chess moves that Byrne is doing uh, as the Mars twins continue to manipulate or work behind the scenes to, to engineer Namor's downfall or Oracle's downfall, uh, specifically. I think I don't recall how this ties into Iron Man very well, but I believe that this is the opening gambit for that plot thread. Have you done a lot of research on that? Are you familiar with it? With Iron Man? Yes. I I can't I haven't I've got to skim the issues that I've got and I looked them up. Um and he's he like is he's not uh he's not as involved in that story as he is in Namor. He's much more right. prominent in these issues. Uh, he is working with somebody else kind of behind the scenes to sabotage it's not so much they want to take out stark but they actually do some i don't want to spoil those issues but they do some stuff to stark himself and he's kind of working behind the scenes and i think it kind of backfires on him because well perhaps we can do a sidebar on one of these episodes and take a brief uh, review of of those couple of issues or at least once we get our research done uh Describe how they tie in because right. it does play out. Desmond uh, Desmond pays off in this series. I'll just say it that much without spoiling anything. Yeah, and it's coming up. It's coming up pretty quick. Right. Um, but uh, another question on that: Do you think in the opening page where Namor is being chided by um, Namorita about basically, he does seem to be a little. Uh, uh, a little 
clueless about getting back involved with baby Mars. And she is rightfully saying, are you crazy? You know, just a couple issues ago, she was trying to uh, trade you in to save her own brother. And Namor basically says, you know, that's my business, basically kind of butt out. And he says the same to Lady Jacqueline. Do you get the impression that she is now working for Oracle with Namor? Lady Jacqueline? Yeah, or she's just visiting. I think she's just visiting. Um, I don't recall how it was left at the end of the uh, Invaders reunion, but I think you know this is a continuation of her supporting character role, although I don't recall her having anything further in this series. I don't mind her being there, but I think she's just visiting. No, I, I didn't. That's, right. That's the impression that I got, but I didn't know if she was there uh, for a reason. Uh, and that's kind of cut short when the... Um, the Atlantean uh, pops in. Uh, and then we get the whole backstory of, um, and in my reading of this, uh, this Lyra or Lyra, uh, I guess when, when she marries, she actually marries Namor and now she thinks she is queen. And I guess a legal loophole, find, she finds out that, but even though Lady Dorma wasn't there, I guess because she was portraying Lady Dorma, Lady, they consider Lady Dorma to be the queen, not her. So that enrages her, and she vows, um, you know, vengeance. I think that's when she goes and kills her, when she goes and uh, shatters the the tank that she's in, and she suffocates. Um, that was pretty much of a shock when that yeah. had happened. I didn't think they were going to go that far. I thought it was going to be a Oh no! Next issue, I will save her in time. Oh no, she's just unconscious yeah. or something like that. But no, they they really did kill her, and she's been dead in the Marvel universe up to this point. When you were you were as baffled as Namor was. <laughs> well, apparently, some I don't think Byrne did this, but some writer, maybe in the the seventies uh, run, established that at one point this Lyra tried to. Well, to put it delicately, she tried to become pregnant by Namor, and I guess it's revealed that because of his hybrid nature, he's sterile. Right. Right. But I thought that was a pretty good, um, pretty good uh, logical conclusion to the fact that he is a hybrid, yeah. uh, much like a, um, a mule, a donkey, mm-hmm. and a horse produce yeah. a mule who is sterile. I hadn't realized that as a kid. But uh, that, you know, it makes perfect sense. It makes sense, yeah. But it, it, it purposes a plot when we get to that story, if we ever get that five years down the road, um, there there's some other machinations that are going on there as yeah. well. Yeah. I, uh, the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting, in terms of Marvel Universe history, um, one of the first weddings that we ever saw was obviously the wedding of Reed and Sue, in the Fantastic Four, but the second one major uh, marriage that we saw on camera, so to speak, was in Avengers 60, the wedding of Yellow Jacket and Janet and Dine, the Wasp. And at the point, the conclusion of that book, uh, they say, oh, so it's just this whole marriage thing has been a sham then. You know, you're not really married to him because... Uh, he was Yellow Jacket, not Henry Pym. And she, in a Roy Thomas reveal, says, no, 
we're married. I looked it up. No matter what name you used, we're legally wed, Tim. And <laughs> it's it's a high note. It's an, uh, a celebration. It's like, oh, good, hooray, to end the book on. Here, it's just the reverse. If Lyra had married him under false pretenses, uh, you know, impersonating somebody else, it's just the opposite. They're playing it the, the reverse role. If what you're right. Saying. That's well, that may be Atlantean law versus uh, surface law. Yeah. But, I don't know but, if that's true or not. I, as a kid, I just accepted. I don't. When, I bet uh, that's not true. Said it we, back we in ask. 60. I. I have no idea if it's true or not, or if it's a principle of law. I've never heard of it before, but uh, that was a, a major event in the Silver Age when they got hitched. We'll have uh, to um, we'll have to uh, ask our current lawyer. Uh, yeah, Paul. I we knew somebody who was up on, uh, on law. Hmm. Well, it's like well, the same way. If you look at, I think it's uh, Spider-Man issue one where he goes to the bank to cash a check, and it's made out to Spider-Man. And they said, hey, you could be anybody in a mask. I can't cash this. You have no ID saying you're Spider-Man. And that's the reason why he starts taking photos of himself as Peter Parker. So that tells me that the just any name wouldn't... I don't, I don't know. It's all comic book law, so I guess it doesn't matter. <laughs> but, we um, should get Seahawk involved. Exactly. There's our, there's our, uh, there's our resident lawyer. Um, what do you think of uh, I really like the way and this is burn all the way I love Namor's black jacket I don't know if that's leather I'm assuming it's leather it's like a trench coat um, he's wearing it when he he's talking to Cap he doesn't suit it first and he's wearing it when he visits Cap and then he's at least wearing part of it when he's flying on the back of the Griffin I you know it's an interesting look I don't mind it. It's almost a carryover from the German. Uh, mm-hmm. It so does. It's invaded. drawn the same way. Yeah, it's drawn the same way. Uh, I'm wondering if he's he's picked up Masterman's. <laughs> you know, he's raided his he's raided his old closet, so he's taking all his old clothes. I don't um, know. I I hadn't thought much about it, but uh, I didn't I didn't make that connection. But I think that's just the way Byrne draws leather. But he he often portrays Namor in all black. His suits are all black, um, black tie, black suit, black shoes, you know, black top to bottom. And this is another uh, uh, way he's done. You know, I guess he thinks he's going to the Savage Land. Maybe he needs a coat. Uh, I think he wouldn't. (laughs) Business attire, I mean, say. Well, I would think he would not wear a a suit. To, well, I guess he doesn't, does he? Because he flies to. Uh, yeah, in fact, it changes when he visits Desmond and Phoebe. He's wearing the black trench coat that he was wearing when he was in Adventures Mansion. But when he arrives uh, in Atlantis, he's of course only jacket. His trunks. But when he gets to the Savage Land, it's a much shorter jacket. Yeah, noticed it's only waist length instead of down to his knees. And as I flip through the pages here, he's still wearing it when we get to the last page. Yeah. We'll it looks to- more like he's wearing a probably, it looks more like something Connery would wear when he's not in his suit. He's kind of doing some spy stuff uh, 
at night or something like that. It looks like just a black turtleneck, black black slacks, and and a, and a very stylish uh, black jacket. That, but we know Byrne loves to draw very up to date clothing yep. on his characters. So that's just Byrne getting a precious muscle. Yep. All right. Um, Speaking of fashion, let's uh, let's go to the the next to the last page where the shadowy figure is in fact stalking Namor as he or Namor as he um, he scouts around uh, the the Savage Land. The figure is shown in cameo uh, in a black blackout over white or yellow backgrounds and is wearing a, a headdress or a do rag, however you want to say that. Skull cap with long flowing ribbons. Why on earth would anybody who was involved in martial combat have long flowing ribbons that could be grabbed and jerked? Uh, just, Why would he wear a, a sash around his waist? Same same argument, uh, except yeah. for stylish appearance. I have no idea why they would do this. It just seems uh, just terrible. <laughs> I have more problems. I have more problems with the collar. I think that collar would be really cumbersome and get in the way. Right. Um, Try to look to the left or the right, and you can't. Yeah. So, yeah. But on that on that same page, this uh, I thought of something when I was uh, we we'd mentioned back to the bins, and they covered uh, the the first appearance of the Griffin. In that episode, they kind of go off on a tangent about artwork and layouts. And the value of of a, lay, a good layout versus yes. necessarily good art, and I think this is a great example of that because Byrne is an excellent artist, but he is also an excellent layout uh, artist. And that there are artists that can do great pinups, but they can't tell a story very well. You get lost, or you can't you get confused. You can't t- follow it. And a a good comic book artist has to be like a director. He has to. Lay out the action or the drama or the scenes, whatever's happening, so that we, the reader, can follow it. And this is a great shot of, and this one page, we get what we know now is Iron Fist on the left. You see him suiting up, first in a building, and then you slowly zoom in on him. You see him jumping into the jungle, and you running to the jungle, and then you see him kind of powering up his Iron Fist. And on the opposite of that, we see Namor overlooking this big compound. And we slowly zoom in on him as we can see that Iron Fist is getting closer. And then the bottom is a single panel of him getting struck by the Iron Fist and being knocked out. And I think that is a great, that shows Burns' strength of laying out that, laying out that, it's very, you can see this as a movie. Uh, this is almost be used as a storyboard. And you can see those scenes intercut between each other, between Iron Fist and Namor, until it concludes where they finally meet at the bottom. Right. Um, speaking of the zoom in on Namor when he's in Savage Land, uh, skulking about or uh, doing his, his reconnaissance. What's the word I want? Reconnaissance? Yes. Um, we should back up a step. Uh, when the Griffin attack last issue in 14... Uh, there was a page that we were talking about uh, where Namor and Phoebe are talking, and she's giving the backstory and an explanation of why she decided to keep the kid. And the sequence of panels is somewhat similar in terms of 
a high shot of the two of them talking, then a little closer uh, through the trees and a little closer to them. And then the final panel is a very close over-the-shoulder shot as Phoebe is reacting and in, in shock to something that's swooping down. It's the griffin, as it turns out. This was pointed out by Nigel Spink um, that this was a great sequence from the point of view of the griffin as mm-hmm. he is in the trees, as he's closing in and is about to attack. And we failed to mention that. Uh, also, I, I couldn't figure out where the fourth appearance of the griffin was as he was so subtle throughout the book. Uh, it's on that page because the top panel had, again, a cameo shot of, I thought it, they were fronds, but it turns out they were feathers from the griffin. The next panel has a very subtle close-up of the griffin's claws, and there's nothing in the third panel. And in the fourth panel, he's, he's pouncing, but you don't know that. But that whole sequence, Nigel caught and uh, brought up on our Facebook page. And I want to thank him very much for covering that point that we had, we had glossed over. Right. And once you once you know that and you go back and look at it, you can see how great it looks. You, I, noticed, oh, yeah. I, didn't notice, I didn't notice the feathers, the claws. It was uh, just a little too subtle for mm-hmm. me when I first read it. I didn't, I didn't recognize the claw and the feathers as being the griffin. I caught his silhouette much earlier in the book, but I didn't, I didn't see it on that page because it's so black. It, it's literally cameo uh, lighting. And I, that's something else we should probably mention. I don't recall when this started, but I, it has just jumped out at me. Burn in the background is doing a framing device of black squares. That is the gutters in between the panels. Sometimes in this book are white and sometimes they're black. But it's almost like uh, when you mat a photo in a frame, he's framing or putting a black square behind the panels on the page. He did this also in She-Hulk, but he's doing it here. And I wondered, I just now flipped through the, the book to see is it only when he's in the in the Savage Land? Is it only when he's in Atlantis? And it's not. He, he does it. It's throughout the book. Yeah, throughout the book, except for when he's in Adventures Mansion. I didn't notice it as much. But this technique is he's going to use more and more as we go further into this book in the second year in particular. And I don't recall when it began, but I have the impression that it started in the uh, the Invaders Reunion. Arc. Possibly. It, I it's a, can't swear by that. If somebody wants to do some research and look at it, I'd appreciate it. It's a way of uh, kind of connecting the panels uh, and also providing a, so that it, what it does is, like, for instance, when they first, when they're first swimming down to Atlantis and we see like the two top panels are them swimming further down. They're talking about the heat. And then the bottom is a, is a great big shot of Atlantis. Well, if you didn't have that big black behind it, you're, it's going to look like a lot of empty space. And he chose not to, he didn't want to expand his panels and draw more. So he just puts that black rectangle behind it. It, it, it unites them. And it also fills in the gaps of him not having to fill in every square inch of this page with comics. Yeah, very much an expert on layout. And I like these panel layouts, as opposed to when we get to X-Men, the hidden years of the lost years, and uh, 
what is it over in D.C., the Tenth Circle. Uh, some of the other bizarre uh, triangles and, and uh, you know, bizarre-shaped panels become a bit too much, but that's just my yeah. first opinion at this point. Um, I, I much prefer these. In fact, I enjoy these because, as you say, it's cinematic. Mm-hmm. Very. See this as a storyboard with the cropping and the framing, uh, and I just think it's superior. I don't know how in the world you'd ever film one of these things, uh, because it, I personally would have thought you could never make an Aquaman uh, movie because of all the, the underwater scenes that would have to be done. But it, they pulled that one off, so... You could do this. It would just, I mean, the Griffin, for instance, would have to be all CGI. Uh, and then, the as we you said, we've seen from Aquaman, you could do the underwater Atlantean parts um you could do it it wouldn't be cheap but you could right you could uh you could certainly do it um, that's why i don't think we'll ever see a, a submariner movie i say that not having seen the uh second black panther movie that that yeah you know, he's not he may show back up in other marvel films you're never going to get a uh a standalone namor and the Namor in that film is not really like this Namor at all. So, that, in my opinion, that's just as good. We don't we don't need a standalone. Um, but yeah, this was a this was setting up a lot of stuff. That last page is is nice. It's a very detailed jungle scene of Namor laying down, kind of he's laying with his tongue hollowed out, and Iron Fist is kind of uh, gloating over him. Did uh, did you get the clue in the page we were just talking about, which is the second to last page, where we see Iron Fist kind of uh, stalking Namor, and he punches him. I don't know, punches him from behind, but he punches him out. And you see his Iron Fist. Do you see a clue there, that very bottom panel? Uh, I don't want to give it away because I don't want to spoil anything. Yeah, are you There's saying a, about the Iron Fist uh, itself? Image? About the Iron Fist, yes. The the fist, the actual Iron Fist. There's okay. A clue there. um, yeah, I can guess where you're headed with this, but um, you know the, that reveal will be coming another issue or two down the road. Right. It gets a little more. There's more clues in the issue that I'm going to cover, but it's not. You know, things aren't actually revealed. I think until the the next issue, which would be what uh, seventeen. Yeah. Well, well, what do you want to get on to? Uh, if we go true to form, if that's an odd number book, that's going to fall in my ballywick. But first, I think we yep. should do 16. <laughs> All right. Let me, uh, that is my issue. So let me get my synopsis out here. It's not quite as elegant as yours. You have a very uh, nice way of, you are very dramatic in your writing. Mine tends to be a little dry. Well, I guess the point across. I'm trying to summarize the issue for those who don't have it. Yeah. Or have it in front of them. And, you know, if, if I try to do a synopsis, I find that I expand and I'm telling too much. So maybe that's that's what I tend to do. But, yeah. Uh, but it makes a nice contrast when you're working my work. OK, we have got Namor, Submariner issue 16. It's at a cover price of one dollar. Uh, our writer, of course, a writer, artist, anchor, John Byrne. Colorist is Glennis Oliver. Our letter is John Byrne. Our cover art is by John Byrne. Our editor is Terry Cavanaugh. And our editor-in-chief is still Tom DeFalco. 
It's had a release date of May 7th, 1991, with a cover date of July 1991. 32 pages, 22 are story. The uh, other burn work worked on while this was out was he's still writing on Iron Man, so Iron Man issue 270 came out. He did the cover art for Watha number 13, which is the Marvel comedy uh, book. And then he did the, uh, I couldn't find him much in front, but Marvel Comics Presents 79. He was artist on a story called The Tender and the Vulgar. All right, Namor, Submariner number 16, titled Fist of Iron. Prologue 1. 16 weeks in the past. We open on an elaborate house built in a massive tree high above a jungle environment. A young woman, in revealing leopard one-piece, swings from a vine onto the porch. She calls for her husband, Kazar. As she enters the house, sees evidence of a struggle. Prologue 2. 15 days in the past. Colleen Wing enters the office of Nightwing Restorative. I think that's the name of it because I couldn't tell on the... What it looks like a restorations. I couldn't tell on the letterhead. She calls for her partner, Misty Knight, but the room is empty. She finds a note from Misty saying she knows where Danny has gone and is going after him. She asks Colleen not to follow her. Prologue 3, 14 hours in the past. Mars Tower. A Mars employee informs Phoebe it is possible to locate and fly her to Atlantis, but he does not recommend it. She is determined and orders him to make the arrangements before the end of the day. Present day. Namorita stands in the bow of an Atlantean Omnicraft. Cold of the South Pole does not bother her. She is worried about her cousin, Namor. He's been in the Savage Land now for more than 24 hours. Carrie Alexander tries to reassure her and not to worry. Namorita gives us a recap of the strange jungle complete with dinosaurs nestled in the, in the Eternity Mountains in the heart of Antarctica. Carrie spots a craft approaching. Namorita flies up to meet a Mars helicopter with Phoebe Mars. The lovesick Phoebe asks if Namor is with the two women. Namor slowly regains consciousness. The Prince of the Sea has his wrists tied to poles and is surrounded by heaters. His Atlantean skin is red and he is losing moisture quickly. Ward Meacham greets the hero with a smile and a pistol. Namor accuses the executive of illegal exploitation of the Savage Land. A voice off-panel boasts of being responsible for capture and soon killing the Atlantean. The voice has the face of Dana Rand. Namor Defiantly tells Rand to go ahead and kill him, but Rand will not will not end Namor before he learns what Namor knows of his operations in the Savage Land. Namor claims ignorance as Rand draws close. The Prince of the Sea rips the post from their foundation. Meacham runs as Namor punches Rand through the thin metal walls. Rand rips his shirt off to reveal his Iron Fist costume. He powers up his right hand to ready for battle as Misty Knight, still missing her bionic arm, see previous issues, Watches through a pair of high-tech binoculars. She slips her pack on and makes her way to Danny, who makes her way to Danny knowing her heart still burns for him. Back to the fight. Rand continues to battle the Avenging Sun. He compares Namor to Ben Grimm, the Thing. Both are worthy adversaries. This confuses Namor as Iron Fist is an ally of the FF. The Atlantean hurls a boulder at Rand who shatters it with ease. Interlude 1. 9,000 miles to the north, Prisoner Samuel Smithers opens a box he received in the mail. It's a cake with the words good luck and icing on top. Smithers, thinking the cake is a joke, is shocked 
As it bursts open and a shadowy figure with multiple tendrils emerges and says he has a proposition for him. Interlude 2. 500 miles to the east in a dark alley, Desmond Mars sits in his car. He's dealing with a man who looks like he does not make an honest living. Desmond asks if the stuff is pure. The man assures him it's white as snow. Mars tells the man he will he would not deal with such scum except he needs money fast. He hands over a briefcase of money and leaves. The man makes idle threats under his breath when a man in black suit with a skull grabs him. He wants to know everything about his dealings with Mars. Back to the Savage Land. Phoebe, name Marita, and Carrie uh, use the Mars helicopter to land in the Savage Land. Phoebe strips down to a bikini before name Marita warns her it's best to stay covered up in the jungle. Everything in the Savage Land is big, even the mosquitoes. The young Atlantean leads them to her cousin. Carrie asks her how she knows where Namor, Namor is, and Namorita says she just knows it's a feeling. Namor is impressed with Iron Fist, but ensures him the fight will not be his. A blow from behind sends Namor to the ground. Rand offers the prince a warrior's death when he is attacked by Namorita and knocked off a cliff. Namor thanks his, thanks his cousin, but they must, be, they must pursue, pursue Iron Fist. Rand picks himself off off when a pistol is pointed at his head. He looks up to see Misty Knight. Danny apologizes for keeping her in the dark concerning his return. He never meant to hurt her, but now he can tell her the truth. As the two Atlanteans search the base of the cliff, a gun takes aim and fires. Namorita is struck in the temple, knocking her unconscious. Before Namor can react, Iron Fist grabs the young girl with his, by the hair and threatens her with his glowing fist. He orders Namor, orders Namor to surrender. To be continued. And we leave off on an action scene. I've been enjoying your reading and suddenly oh, realized that I get to join in to the discussion here. <laughs> no. I, uh, I like this. This is really an action-filled issue. It is. It has, it's bringing all the characters to the Savage Land. I mean, by the time that, that Misty shows up, it's like, how many more women can possibly <laughs> gather here? Um, you know, it's like all the supporting characters, with the exception of uh, Lady uh, Falkworth, or, or whatever her name is. Uh, uh, Jacqueline, yeah. Jacqueline. Um, boy, there's a lot of skin shown in, in this, too. I'm going to ask you, did you recognize who Smothers was from this appearance? I didn't know until I... I wasn't familiar who he was until I did a little research. I don't know if we want to reveal who he is, because it comes up later. Not yet. I don't think there's any any way... There isn't even a clue here for you to, to orient, to know who he is. Unless you just know the name. Right. This is Byrne taking one page of subplot and shuffling it in to uh, give a break in the action here. That's my interpretation of it. Uh, but there's a way to figure out Smithers. And you're right, I'm seeing a couple of minor clues or uh, teases as far as what's going on with uh, Iron Fist sprinkled yeah. in here. So much easier once you know the solution to go back right. and spot it. Yeah, you might not pick up on it uh, if you didn't know what the, what the, yeah, the results are. Um, but you're right. There is a lot of, and it's mostly with the women. Of course, Namor has his shirt off, but it's mostly right. the women are 
And we can start by that, which I thought was interesting in the front cover. We see uh, it's Iron Fist is punching Namor as Namorita flies to his aid. In the background, we see uh, Phoebe and Carrie. Now, Phoebe's wearing a, a little thin bikini, string bikini, which we see her in in the book. But Carrie is also wearing what looks like a one-piece bathing suit, which makes no sense because right. it's not what she's wearing in the book. She's wearing like, well, they when they they because they were dressed in like parkas, and right. we see Phoebe stripped down. She's like, oh, I'm I'm boiling in this outfit. So she's and why she's wearing a bathing suit. I guess she thought she was going to swim down to Atlanta, maybe. And. Phoebe's wearing more, uh, I mean, Carrie's wearing more appropriate. She's wearing kind of a uh, a jacket, a sleeveless vest and jungle boots and, and pants. But uh, that's when Phoebe's threatened by a giant mosquito and Namorita grabs it to let her know that, you know, everything everything's big down here. Uh, and then we see her, we do see her getting dressed. She's putting on some kind of a sleeveless outfit when uh, Namorita heads off to, you know, whatever way she is... Um, she can sense where Namor is, and she knows he's in trouble. She's heading off in that direction. And I, what did you I, think of that? This seems to be the introduction of, or first appearance of another uh, power in the power set for Namorita. I I don't know. I didn't. I, I haven't read any further. To I don't know if it shows up again or uh, what it. I just thought they were like, well, they're cousins, they're Atlanteans, they're both hybrids, and maybe that gives them some kind of a bond. Uh, I don't know. Um, it may be, as you say, burn over explaining how do yeah. they find each other in the midst of the ocean. Yeah. You know, he needs a way to, if the Savage Land is really large, as I understand it, it's a huge jungle area, but, uh, you know, if it's that large, how in the world would people ever find each other in the densely overgrown, uh, you know, subtropical forest or tropical forest? Rather, I think he could easily have said she heard the fight with her Atlantean hearing. She spotted him with her Atlantean eyesight. You know, she any you know she flies up and surveys and sees. Maybe she sees the complex, and that's when she goes investigating. She sees Namor. I mean, there's lots of ways to. It's just more of a shorthand to say that she knows where that he's in trouble. Yep. Um, and I will say you see it prompted kind of on that same page. Now that I see Namor's gill slits in his neck, I can't unsee him. I see him right. all the time, and Burn does a close yes. up of of his um, draws him. Yeah, there's a, one scene. I don't know if it was this issue or the issue before, but there's also a side shot of. Of Nina and she's got it as well right and you know when I first read these I never caught it I never saw it uh, it wasn't an issue for me it was never a problem I was a little uh, a little annoyed by the fact that this is the second time in about as many issues that Namor has been dehydrated uh, that, that although nowhere near as as bad as uh, in in the uh, the Germany <clears throat> episodes, the uh, Vader's reunion when they right. really roast him, but good, um, which I thought was you know a little overplayed until 
I understood where he was, why he was doing it to Neymar and where that was going to play out. I was concerned that, oh, no, is everybody going to know about this fish-out-of-water technique? This is terrible, but, uh, but you know, it doesn't last here, and I thought that was good. I wonder if maybe that's because there was feedback from somebody who had said, hey, there's a real simple solution that Neymar should have employed. It's, I don't know where the idea yeah. I, don't, I really don't know. Well, it'd be like constantly re- uh, introducing kryptonite whenever you want to uh, put Superman out of the way. But this is only four. It's only four space haters, and unless they are really putting off a lot of heat, uh, I mean, how would that be any different than if he's? Would this draw him out any more than if he was just in his suit out of the water for twelve hours or fourteen hours a day? Because um, he seems to be sweating. He's re- very red, and he's sweating profusely. And I guess that's supposed to represent him losing all of his moisture. Um, but I was afraid they were going to going to make him um, go psycho again. You know, there's there's no indication that he's wearing his trunks or his belt buckle underneath these pants. So you know, since they've established and reestablished that that's the thing that's filtering his blood and warning him when he's got to go back to the water or out of the water, or you know needs to do something, I was afraid that they were going to make him go off the deep end here uh, in the Savage Land yeah. by this interesting process, but we'll see if and that I, out. I also like to point out that uh, this issue does not have the duo shade. He is... Oh, you're right. Does not. And I thought that was interesting that his shading... It's not as... When we start covering more issues going on, he seems to, because he drops the duo shade, maybe, I don't know, it's it's on and off throughout this whole series, and then he drops it. It's not, not an issue at all. I think there's some zipatone, maybe some places. But later he, he gets where he's trying to uh, mimic what the duo shade will do with his own inks, and it gets a little... Um, sketchy and muddy um the for instance the 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 two pages where uh we see the punisher shows up and i yeah. i'll say i don't like his take on the punisher i don't like the way he's drawn castle i just don't like it at all um and obviously desmond is working with a drug dealer or something he's buying drugs or selling drugs or doing something because he needs uh, he needs a lot of money and quickly. And I I couldn't get a connection, but I think this is his, because of his dealings with uh, Stark over in the Iron Man book. Yeah, I think you're right. And it just and it just brings the Punisher in, uh, who threatens this this punk. You know, basically he's I guess Mars's dealings with uh, with with the this or this drug dealing he's doing has brought the attention of the Punisher. So the Punisher's going to be brought in, and he'll he'll come back later. Um, but that's just I do, that's just kind of an interlude. That and the one with Smithers. CD on the wall in the opening shot of that drug deal. Uh, I saw that. I don't know if it looks almost like ISA or. Yeah, I think that that one's right. I can't read the pink one that's beneath it. That stretches from the jag. It almost looks like X Men, doesn't it? Yeah, X M E. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And so oh, I'm my. thinking that there's, there is or was some message about um, that that's been altered. Somebody has been erased. Somebody yeah. is a something X Men, a false X Men. Yeah. I think there was something there that's been altered. Um, oh. um, help me out. We've been talking about Duo Shade and Zip Tone. Can you define the difference between the two? I'm thinking they're interchangeable, but that's probably not true. It's not. The Duo Shade is a, it's printed on Bristol board, so you buy it. And from what I found, they don't make it anymore. And I, I think from some of the articles I read is because of printing became more sophisticated that it wasn't needed, but it's the, the shading and it's usually lines, not dots are on are kind of printed on the Bristol board and you can only see them if you apply it with a certain chemical. So he would take the board, draw his, whatever he wants to draw on it, ink it. And then he would go over it with a special chemical that would, it's almost like he's painting the shading on and it would appear. So it, you can get softer tones. You can get much more of a organic look to it. Because Zipatone is a plastic sheet they cut and they actually put over the, uh, the artwork after it's inked. And okay. so you can't, obviously you're having to cut those shapes out and you're, you're limited to uh, what you can do. So you're not, you can't control that as well. But that was, you know, that's old school way of doing some type of shading or something like that. So uh, we know Byrne likes to do it. He did it and uh, he used it a couple times in She-Hulk. He did a, the, the best example is uh, his OMAC work because that's all in black and white. That is all duo shade. And that, that artwork is beautiful. Um, and it, I've heard that it's faster than doing it normally. So I don't know what the, if it was an expense or he didn't have time to go back and do the, the shading. I don't know. I don't, I couldn't find any evidence or any, any articles saying why he stopped using it. Somebody had told me, sorry, I hit my microphone. Here. Somebody had told me that the Zipitone, uh, that they stopped producing it. And as a result, any of the comic book artists that had it, Suddenly, it became extremely valuable. It's not yeah. like, oh, see, can you lend me a sheet? It's like, no, I gotta yeah. save. Them. I gotta save them. <laughs> I can I'm see that. Swear for myself, you know. Yeah. It, it, and when you ran out, that was it. There wasn't any more. Yeah. Um, but I think it was it was present in the 1970s and the uh, the revival of the Uncanny X-Men because I believe Byrne was using it then, along with some other clever. Uh, photocopy tricks yeah. to, to produce things, but uh, we won't go there right now. You were talking about using a chemical to reveal the pattern. Um, I can't recall if it was just, it must have been the 1960s when I was a kid. You, I can't think of what it was called, but you'd buy a coloring book that was printed, I don't know, maybe it's the same thing, but uh, basically... There would be, you, you'd open up the coloring book and there'd be, let's say, an image of uh, a flower and a rabbit there in some sort of a scene. You would take a, um, a kid's paintbrush and just ordinary water and paint with the water over the petals of the flower 
and it would reveal a texture or a pattern underneath, like a latent image uh, mm-hmm. being developed. Um, but not all parts of the page had it, only it was printed uh, in specific places. So if you wanted to reveal that, and that was the point of the book, a kid's activity for somebody to, to do, you would uh, use a little bit of, maybe you'd put it on the rabbit's ears, but there, is not, there isn't anything underneath there, so it wouldn't develop any, any pattern there. But it was uh, it was the same sort of idea about shading or uh, or adding texture that it would be hidden there until revealed by your paintbrush, and maybe you'd, you'd color the coloring book as well. I can't think of what it was called. Uh, it's, I, I just it's a blank. I can't remember if there was any term for it, but it was uh, a marketing device for coloring books for kids in the '60s. Maybe it still exists. I don't know. Well, they. Later, I think I have seen markers that you could paint with markers, and if you paint over it with another one, it would change the color. It's like there's a chemical uh, reaction there, something like that. Yeah. Um, it's very similar to this is way old school, but remember how you used to be able to paint with lemon juice and it's yeah, invisible, and then if you expose it to heat, it would darken, and that was your yes. way of doing invisible ink. Yeah. When they Similar. first started, like uh, when personal computers were coming in, there was a company called, oh, this is going to be an old school. Uh, let me let me diverge just for a second. There was a company called Info, it was Infocom, I think, and they had a series of computer games, uh, challenges. They were half puzzles, half brain teasers, but they were uh, things that you would buy and you would uh, try to figure out or go work the, the, the problem or the, the story and come to a solution at the end. For instance, you were playing Sam Spade the detective, and you would have to uh, uncover information and go visit and interrogate different characters in this interactive computer game. It was basically text. But uh, if you got to a person in the right order, in the right sequence, they would give you a piece of information. And finally, when you got to the very end, you would have the solution, you would make the arrest, and uh, you would solve the case. Well, once you'd done it, there was no, no point to doing it again or playing the game again. But they were a little pricey, but they were brand new. But they were so difficult that they found that they needed to print study guides or assistance of, of, you know, in addition and separate to the, the computer floppy disk. There was a, a help guide that if you bought this thing... Uh, there were like maybe 20 pages in the booklet, and you use a latent image marker pen over top of it. So it would say um, things like, uh, you know, the question is, where is the gun hidden? And if you swipe this marker after that on the page, the letters would be revealed. Have you looked in the couch? Um, and it said, or, or the next one would be, um, is the gun in the study? And you swipe over it and say, no, it's not. You know, is the gun in the kitchen? And it would say, you know, taunting things. It would give you some information. But once you swipe that, that chemical pen over top of it, the latent image marker, it would reveal permanently whatever was, you know, printed like lemon juice, so to speak, behind it. And ultimately, once you use the study guide and you, or the, the, the help page, the help booklet, you would get the information 
and and you could never unknow it. So it's a way. It was a yeah. way to solve the thing. If you couldn't solve the computer program, you could get a nudge in the right direction or go all the way through it and come right to the end. And I had one or two of those that I was able to solve, but the one about the detective was absolutely unsolvable. I was right to the end, and I couldn't figure out how to take the last step, how to win the game. So I shelled out an extra 20 bucks or something for the study guide, and I went right to through the book. It didn't color anything until I got to the last page, and I swiped it. It was something like, you know, do you, do you have your suspect? Do you know how the crime was committed? And I just didn't know how to end the game, so I swiped it and it said, slap the cuffs on her. <laughs> so as soon what? as you did that, and you told the computer, slap the cuffs on it, she confessed. You know, She was arrested, and that was the end of the game. That's all I needed it for. But it taught me a lesson, and I remember it now, 40 years later, that uh, they were. it was a lot of fun. It was the beginning of, of technology and the, the you know computer era, so to speak, but it still relied on this very old school latent image uh, reveal technology. I have no idea if they're still doing it. Okay, end of my diversion. No, no, no. It's it sounds like uh, I, there's another list, podcast I listened to um, with uh, Mike Nelson from Mystery Science Theater. If you know who that is, and he does it with uh, another writer of his from company he works for called Rift Tracks and they have been covering Encyclopedia Brown stories. Yeah. I've never read those, but I'm I was familiar with Encyclopedia Brown. It's like kids, a kid detective. Yes. Two minute mysteries for kids. Yeah. And they and some of them, the you know, it's always you read the story and then you get clues along the way and then then at the end Encyclopedia Brown's like, well I know who did it. And then you're supposed as a kid figure out or you can read ahead and figure out. And some of the reveals are so, uh, there's no way you could have put this together when they reveal like, this is the clues I had, so I know we'll have to solve the problem. And some of the reveals are so uh, outrageous or so obscure, there's no way you could have solved it. But that's what it sounds like, similar. I remember those, well, if you can find the paperback books now, they're probably, for nostalgia value, worth quite oh, yeah. a bit there were they were published a whole series of them called uh, two minute mysteries more two minute mysteries and the main character instead of encyclopedia brown it was inspector hijaden uh an indian um detective basically you know a sherlock holmes and it was the same sort of thing two or three pages to set up the the mystery and give you a conundrum. So how did he solve it? Or how did he know right. he was lying? And then you turn the book upside down, and there'd be a one-paragraph solution that says, he could tell because blah, 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 whatever it was. Yeah. Um, the one that I remember, I, I always love those. We got a big kick out of those in the 60s. My family would read them to each other. And it seems like they were serialized in the newspaper, too, like one a day during weekday publications. Uh, on the comics page, but at any rate, um, the, the reason why I'm telling you is the one story was uh, the guy was accused of robbing a, a grocery store or something like that. He says, "No, no, I was outside. I was watching the Memorial Day parade. Um, you know, the bands came by and they give description of the bands and and what have you." And he says, uh, "And boy, I watched the the military uh, you know reservist uh, team walking through." As they crossed the uh, wooden 
Old Mill Bridge. They were so splendid in their uniforms, marching in perfect unison, uh, the guns and swords flashing, glinting in the light. I just laid back against the shade tree and watched them and enjoyed my lemonade. You know, you don't have a thing on me. And the question is, how did you know that he was lying? And the answer, which I thought was just obscure, it was impossible to, to have known, is that the military unit would not have walked in unison across a wooden bridge for fear that the tremors would uh, collapse the bridge. The bridge? Yeah, they wow. can step. And it's like, oh, you're kidding me. Yeah, anyway. it's a little, it's a, uh, well, to complete this tangent, there were some. There was a show in the, I think the seventies, and it was the Ellery Queen Mysteries, yes. which I know were. And on that show, they unlike say it's contemporary of Columbo. You know, when you watch Columbo, you know who did it because you saw right. all the crime. Well, in Ellery Queen, you don't see the crime; you see the result, and then you get clues all the way through the show. And at the end, the actor portraying Ellery Queen would say, "Okay." Uh, if you got all the clues, do you know who did it? You know, you know. Keep yeah, in mind that he would rattle off three or four things, you know. And then he would come back to the story and say, "Well, this is how it happened." So you kind of had to guess instead of knowing right off the bat, instead of knowing about just getting him caught. But, well, yep. much like to bring us back to Namor, yes. Uh, has anybody got the clues about Iron Fist? You know, is it Iron Fist? Is it you know somebody in pot and uh, as an imposter? Is it has he come back from the grave? You know what is the mystery here? And Byrne does leave clues, especially in this ep uh, issue. Um, and I'm not going to reveal if if you've read ahead, you know who what the solution is, but I won't spoil it for anybody who hasn't. Um, but if you want a clue, I would say. Look at Burns' work on the original Iron Fist, which is some of his early, early work, and see the way he portrays Danny Rand using his Iron Fist compared to this story. And that's a major clue right there. I'd heard that, but as a person who had never read the Iron Fist series, I didn't have anything to compare it to. It didn't look wrong or different to me. It was just, okay, I just bought it. This is uh, right. Iron Right. Okay, so how did he escape the grave? I, I was I was beyond that. I was just waiting to see the, the, the thing on play. Let me call your attention to something else. I, I agree with you uh, that the clues are all there. When you know the solution, you can see them. Um, but when Misty pulls the gun on him and says, hold it right there, and he rolls over and looks at her, his features soften so much. Instead of being mean or angry or snarling, his uh, his eyebrows arch, his eyes slope just a little bit, uh, his features are softened, and he's like, oh, Misty, Misty, I so desperately wanted to keep you out of this. Don't you understand? It makes my heart ache. And they do a close-up of his face and his eyes. Mm -hmm. um, but they don't do the same thing with his eyes as they did the issue before, when uh, it's not Meacham, but Meacham sees him do his thing uh, with the Meacham's lady, uh, niece, or something. And I, yeah. my no prize on this is going to be 
because we that's been revealed that he has some kind of hypnotic power because Meacham mentions that I think in the last issue. Uh, I think they would argue that Misty Knight is too strong-willed that that would not work on her, and she's too determined. So he decides to you know we don't know what he tells her. He does play on her sympathy like look I promised you know uh, I'm sorry I kept you in, out of the loop I didn't. You know, I couldn't tell you, but now I can tell you the whole story. So I don't know what he tells her because we then jump to Namor and uh, Namorita looking for Rand. And that's when Misty fires at, and I don't know if she misses on purpose or she just means to kind of graze her skull and knock her out. But on that final page, you know, uh, Iron Fist has grabbed Namorita by the hair and then Misty is holding a gun on Namor. So... He has told her something that has convinced her that that these two are either enemies or Rand is somehow in the right and that she's with him. And that's revealed. That kind of gets revealed in the next um, the next issues because she she I think she felt he was an imposter as well, but he knew too much about his backstory. So he she thinks I think that you've got the real Danny Rand captive somewhere and you've and that way you've got all this information from him. That's why you're able to pretend to be Danny Rand. So I think that's brought up in the next issue. Well, I, I can't, I haven't read ahead. I know where this goes, but yeah. I haven't reread that for a while. We'll have to see. Burns an expert at uh, laying the clues in the intertwining. Mm-hmm. He's usually got things plotted out very, very well. Are we just yeah. about finished with this? I think we're done. I think this was a two point. This was a uh, this was I can reading this off the shelf. I think you'd really want to know. Okay, where's this going? What is going to happen? You would really be looking forward to the next um, the next issue. And the next issue is Fire and Stone, and that's another issue. That's another clue. Um, but this is going to kind of get wrapped up, and he's with the the Punisher interlude and also the one with uh, Smithers he is laying he's inserting new storylines that will then come along so he layers he kind of layers one so as one story ends another one is started and moves on so they all interlink so I think that's a he's been doing that this whole run so um, it's interesting when this is finally revealed I got some questions for you about oh real quick you had said before we were going to record that you thought you spotted a mistake, either an issue or the previous issue. Yes, in this and issue. I, uh, what well, I did I said I couldn't find a mistake. What is it going to be? I can't. A spoiler. Can't, yeah, it'd be a spoiler okay. if I said it right now. Let's okay. Hold, then hold, hold next, off to next next episode. Yeah. Um, and then we can discuss it when when all is revealed in hindsight, and we can. We can debate whether it's a mistake or not. But okay. I have one more thing here. Is this is this in a a, a family friendly podcast or or do we, are we all adults here? Well, it's we try to be family friendly. I mean, if it's something bad, we can either delete it or bleep it. Okay, kids, it's time to leave the room. Um, you know, go get a glass of water or something because the adults are going to talk here for a moment. Um, just after the Punisher appears. And the images that you're not really thrilled about, uh, Tim, the very next sequence is uh, Phoebe Mars um, disrobing here. She's roasting alive. 
and I swear I, um, I Burns artwork as I look at those uh, what's the word that I want it's not halter top bikini tops it's like a bikini it's like a string bikini top yeah yeah that triangle um, I think I see something peeking out from the right hand side of it um, that's that's one point. And then the very next panel, when she's kind of sitting on him, I don't know if it's a rock or a, or a backpack or something like that, she's slipping off the uh, the purple pants. She's still wearing that that uh, bikini top. There's yeah. no bikini bottom. Yeah, There's, you see a string. You see, she's got like a a very thin bikini bottom. I, it's in my it's in my copy. I see a it's like a it comes up high on her thigh. Um, it's missing. From okay, yours. you're you're in the third panel on that page, right? First uh, panel, she's the one she's sitting on the rock. Or she's wide. sitting on a rock, taking her pants off. Yeah, that's the that's the one that I'm referring to now. There is nothing. There is no line. There's no panty line in that that second panel at all. It's there yeah. in the third panel very clearly. Yeah. It's in mine. Are you reading a uh, a scan? Or yes, are you I am. A recolored. I think it's a scan, um, but I I see nothing there. There clearly the black uh, top to her her bikini top is there. The purple pants. Namorita's there with uh, the belt around her waist. Oh, and I should mention something about that later on too. But uh, in the version that I'm looking at, Phoebe is not wearing any bottoms, any panties mm. at all. Yes. She's wearing them in mine. It's just odd that. Let's see if I can do a. Well, do a it seems something has been added at some point for uh, subsequent reprinting. Maybe. Uh, can't imagine that anybody erased this. There's there'd be no percentage to doing that. Um, and I do not have the trade reprint of this in the uh, second volume of Namor, uh, so I can't check it. I don't know if that's where this is from. But I can't, I can't do the comparison. And short of digging out the original floppy um, issue, I have no way to check the original one. Do you? Are you reading off the floppy? I am not. I'm reading a scan. Okay. I just, uh, I put it in the chat, the picture in mine. Let's see if it compares to yours. Well, we'll have to take a look at that and see yeah. what we uh, figure out. Anyway, okay, kids, you can come back in the room now. <laughs> Um, that wasn't that wasn't that bad. Uh, I, w I will agree that this whole panel is very cheesecake. It's oh, almost gratuitous. Yeah. And I don't know if why, especially that she's so much in the foreground taking the top off. And it's very prominent of this little bikini thing she's got on that. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Byrne just wanted to, uh, you know, maybe because he's had her in such buttoned up business attire throughout this whole run he wanted to show her a little more well know, he's human. shown her as being a very stylish person before yeah i know what i wanted to tell you about uh nina i keep calling her nina because i can never remember namorita but uh the uh the belt around her waist when she flies up early in this issue up to the mars copter it's mm -hmm. obviously very loose it's almost like a hula hoop it's not tight uh, in that sequence. And then 
Where is again? I think it's uh, in my issue when they're in Atlantis. It's incredibly large and loose, and you kind of look at that and you wonder what is the point of this at all? It's, it's not. not yeah, it's, it's not cinching anything. It's it's like a bracelet that's around the waist. It's like a hula hoop, and I had never noticed her outfit before uh, to pay attention to it, but it. It jumped out at me earlier this hour when we were doing my issue. Like, that's odd. Why? What is well, that? It'd be interesting to look at because uh, I know concurrent with this, she's in the New Warriors, and maybe that's maybe that belt has like a communication device or something. Maybe that she uses. Uh, was there a sequence where she was losing weight or a plot? I don't, <laughs> I mean, I don't think so. I, I think it's just it looks stylish. Otherwise. I think it's just supposed to look stylish. Because it's, it's I mean, her out. Tinkerbell, basically. Yeah. If you look her, at this, she's yeah. an overgrown Tinkerbell. And, and I like the character a great deal, uh, except the last panel. She's obviously, you know, what's the word? Um, well, she's hostage. more. She's, uh, right. female she's hostage, much more. Uh, a weak uh, pawn, which ain't, ain't the way that uh, we like to look at as no. strong females these days. But on the other hand, for the purposes of plot, I enjoy the fact that Byrne has included her and uses her, and she's a nice counterpoint to Namor's headstrong ways. So, you know, well, it's, I, it's she's I'm a, not complaining. She's, no, no, yeah, she's much more of a uh, she's a younger voice in the book, and she is not as stodgy and kind of um, stiff as Namor. Namor can be very uh, off-putting. Well, yeah, he's very off-putting, but he's very uh, stoic, and he's very uh, uh, kind of a stiff character. You know, he's he's, and she is much more relaxed and more with it. You know, with what's going on, and you know, she was the one that earlier knew who the Mars twins were. Namor didn't know. He doesn't keep. She's the one that's kind of because she's dealing with. Uh, the new the new warriors, so she's got more of a contemporary view of things. You know, she's up 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 to date on what's going on, and he's a little more. Uh, you know, he's like it's like talking to your. Uh, it'd be like if your your daughter's talking to you about, I guess, current pop culture or current stuff going on. You'd be like, I don't, you know, you don't have a basis because you know of the age difference. You know. Yep, I know exactly what. Yeah. You're talking about. <laughs> so, well. Uh, I think we've done a good job of covering this. I think uh, I'm looking forward to... Um, you're going to have the next issue, so you get to write the synopsis of how this wraps up. Okay. Starts to wrap up. So you'll be doing 17, I'll do 18 uh, for yes. our next show. A brief summary next issue of the Iron Man subplot. Yeah, I'll, I'll, try, to, I'll try to do that. If, I'll kind of put together of what's been going on in Iron Man while you've been covering this, because... That does kind of come to a head in the next maybe three or four issues. Um, yep. So we'll kind of give a, uh, and we, I plan on uh, covering those issues, the Iron Man issues, more in depth sometime maybe next year. Because uh, I know Luke, Jack, and Eddie. Earth Destruction Directive. Yes, the Godzilla show or the Kaiju show. He does on our network. And it's a great show if you like Kaiju. He's a big Iron Man fan. So I've asked him if he would ever like to come on and cover. Cool. Um, it's mainly the 
the Iron War, the Iron um, Armor Wars Two storyline that Byrne was draw- he was writing, and John Rita Jr. was doing the artwork. So that's something we may do in the future. So, okay. Uh, I know Bert, Kirk always, and- we should probably mention how you can find us. We're on the Facebook page. Yep. Uh, you can write to us at gotta get burned at gmail.com. And I can't think of any other way off the top of my head. So uh, we want to hear your feedback. You can always post on the Facebook page, whether it's third degree burn or uh, we kind of frequent a couple of the other uh, pages as well. And to keep an eye on the folks on the, uh, the two true freaks network. So uh, there's a number of ways to communicate with us, but we'd love to hear your feedback. Yeah, I would like to know what we're because uh, this is a uh, kind of other than elsewhere. this is really the only time that we've kind of can covered uh, something kind of um, um, chronologically, you know, um, more like a, a index show. Um, I will say that for we have some upcoming shows. Uh, as we record this, we are only two days from Halloween. So we have our Halloween show that we released last week. And I've replayed a couple of other Halloween shows. Um, our other two, two free, our other two third degree burn members, Nigel Sphinx and John Hyatt, have uh, just started doing uh, X Men: The Hidden Years, and I think they have another episode coming up soon. So look forward to that. And then, other than that, I think we don't know what we're going to cover in the future. We need to get Brian back on the show. Uh, we miss his absence. Um, we need to get David back on, but. Until that happens, you're still going to have Kirk and I covering these uh, until they run out. And then we, I think, Kirk, we talked about possibly tackling Alpha Flight after this, which I'm I'm all for that. I'd be up for that. Yeah, I'm excited about that. So for Third Degree Burn, I am Tim Elliott. I'm Kirk Greenfield. Thanks for listening. Stronger than a whale, he can swim anywhere. He can breathe underwater and go flying through the air. This is the Prince of the Deep. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn.